0: Section 26 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 3, Chapter 6 The Fall of the Monarchy. Part 2. The principal reason of the revolution had, after all, been financial. The king had summoned the States General in order to avert imminent bankruptcy and so far they had bestowed on the country not prosperity but the promise of liberty for all and equality before the law magnificent gifts but perfectly compatible it seemed with ruin the unjust and unequal pressure of taxes had been removed with the result that the country was poorer than ever the emigration of the aristocracy had in great measure dried up one possible source of wealth another remained the church possessed one-fifth of the entire national territory the assembly with ruin staring them in the face proposed nothing less than to confiscate the estates of the church undertaking in exchange to distribute a suitable pension to priests and bishops and to maintain their establishments for the relief of the poor in the first enthusiasm of the revolution All ranks of the church were not entirely opposed to this measure. The forfeiture of the church lands, compensated by regular salaries, was to be a levelling measure, mulcting heavily the great ecclesiastical lords and rich abbots, but bringing ease and relief from care to many a poor parish presbytery and village convent. The fortune of the church had long tempted the needy governments of France. It was no revolutionary. For it was Louis XIV who wrote in his memoirs, "Les rois sont seigneurs absolus de tous les biens, tant des seculiers que les ecclésiastiques, pour en user comme sage économie selon les besoins de l'État." It is a theory which the revolution was to adopt and expand. Its first requisition, and the church was not to be alone in learning that any form of absolute unity implies confiscation of private property. The state then declared the church lands forfeit to the country. But who in that hour of needed upheaval would purchase these great estates? Who would consent to despoil Mother Church on his own responsibility? The government decided on a plan ingenious enough, though in the end it almost ruined France. The state decided to use this vast mass of property as the guarantee for an emission of paper money each bank bill was so to speak a plot of ground and might at any time be exchanged for it here was no bubble scheme no south sea figment but solid property so much vineyard or meadow or cornland which a man might go and see on which he held a sort of mortgage or preference share the towns subscribed for immense quantities of these assignats, as they were called because they were assigned on a given piece of land four hundred million francs worth of them were set in circulation at first all went merrily as a marriage bell the country appeared to emerge at last from the slough of poverty the notes were popular they seemed to have a double guarantee that of the municipalities and that of the real estate behind them. And all would have been well, perhaps, had the government known moderation. But in the space of seven years it issued bank bills to the amount of 45 milliard of francs, of which not one-tenth part was covered by the church lands, and the assignats lost 99 percent of their value. In 1796 a bill for a hundred francs, Accepted in the spring of 1790 for its full worth in gold, had fallen to the ridiculous equivalent of fifty centimes in silver, and an inextricable system of brokerage and stock jobbing absorbed the energies of French finance. This is glancing ahead. In 1790, the forfeiture of the church lands seemed an issue from the dreary maze of national debt violent indeed and unjust yet which the conciliatory pope pious the sixth might have been brought to accept if any one had taken the pains to conciliate him since in fact it was on this self-same basis that the concordat was founded in eighteen o one between his successor and napoleon bonaparte first consul but that sectarian fury which has so often misled france led the government to attack rome not only in her material possessions but in her spiritual privileges without approaching the vatican the revolution reconstructed the inconvenient and unequal diocese of france into eighty-three brand-new bishoprics to suit the eighty-three new departments and decreed a civil constitution of the clergy which made the state not the pope the head of the church and the priests as civil functionaries of the state were ordered to take an oath of allegiance a day was set apart for the solemn vow but to the surprise indeed the secret consternation of the government nearly all the bishops and more than half the clergy refused to bow down the knee in the house of rimmen they awaited they said the decision of the pope to whom they had appealed but the most painful dilemma of all was the king's louis was a strict catholic he was not like the queen essentially hostile to the revolution and all its works bred and born in the theory of autocracy he was nevertheless intermittently haunted by the idea that like henri iv he might one day reign over a happier france renewed which should issue as from a lustral bath from years of discord and distress he really admired the great undertakings of the constituent assembly the creation of the departments the unification of law the abolition of feudal privilege louis had a long head for detail much good sense a certain administrative capacity and a unique experience of the difficulties of government he was not like marie antoinette a creature of instincts and prejudices, he really desired at any rate at this moment to collaborate with the assembly. But he was a devout and loyal Catholic, far more profoundly than he was a constitutional king. He dared not sanction what appeared to him a sacrilege, an abjuration. Neither dared he exercise his nominal right of veto. He wrote to Pius Sixth imploring his assistance and indulgence he sought to gain time but ministers bade him not to resist the will of the sovereign people but the assembly harassed and harried him to promulgate the thrice odious law and the pope reserved his answer and finally after a month's hesitation the reluctant king on the twenty-sixth of december seventeen ninety most weakly gave his consent to the decree and to the civil constitution of the clergy. Three months later, the Pope solemnly repudiated the law. Many of the clergy who had so far conformed resisted now and were suspended from their functions and emoluments. In front of these heroic nonjurors, the poor king felt the remorse of Peter. He felt ill with remorse and nervous fatigue i had rather be king of metz he declared to his wife's friend Fession, but this state of affairs cannot go on much longer the roi très chrétien felt himself a schismatic his ostensible chaplain was a conforming priest louis would not accept the sacrament from his hands easter was at hand and the question of the king's communion became an affair of national of european importance would he approach the altar with the friends or with the enemies of the revolution the unfortunate monarch hoped to escape to his palace at st Cloud for an easter holiday and there make his peace with heaven unobserved but on the eighteenth of april seventeen ninety one as the king and his family settled themselves in their royal coach about noon on a fine spring day happily disposed for departure an extraordinary popular fermentation seethed in an instant all round the tuileries in vain lafayette enjoined on his national guards to clear the road the soldiers joined the people declaring the king should not pass for an hour and three-quarters there he sat immovable smiling bland while the queen fumed at his side at last lafayette had to come very hangdog and tell the royal pair that they could not, with any hope of safety, leave the palace. They won't let me go, said Louis, eh? They won't let me go? Well, then I must stay. And he repeated three times this sentence, murmuring that it was strange indeed that, having given liberty to France, he should not himself be free. The queen turned her blazing eyes on Lafayette at least now you will admit that we are prisoners she exclaimed that evening she sent a secret message to her brother the emperor and from that hour louis listened to the plans of escape which the queen was constantly preparing he considered himself a captive endurance vile and as such released from the obligation of sincerity a consent wrung by coercion is not binding only louis was too prodigal of his acquiescence when for instance on the very morrow of this scene he surprised the assembly by a friendly call in which he assured the deputies of his determination to maintain the constitution including the civil constitution of the clergy it is impossible to acquit the king of a natural turn for double dealing that very easter april 1791 the pope for the second time rejected the proposed reform of the church the creation of new bishoprics the dissolution of monasteries the confiscation of church lands and the supremacy of the state great was the fury of the leaders of the revolution the government revenged itself on its unhappy hostage louis says they insisted that he should confess himself to a conforming priest he confessed that on easter day he should receive the sacrament at those desecrated hands and he approached the holy table they told him to write to all the courts in europe stating that he was under no constraint and he assured the sovereigns of his liberty though doubtless he sent other letters by other ways the king bland acquiescent appeared dazed fallen into a second childhood but his mind was really busy working out a plan of escape he saw all the difficulties of the situation unlike the queen so much more a queen than a frenchwoman unlike his austrian wife louis did not desire the armed intervention of austria and prussia he remembered poland and he was quite aware that any foreign army would require its price in the form of territory he distrusted austria prussia russia and england most of all he distrusted his brothers he knew that the emigre meant to declare him incapable of reigning to proclaim his son under the regency of monsieur he was therefore really averse to a foreign invasion that was the forlorn hope the last grimmest expedient of the desperate on the other hand louis could no longer endure his prison of paris where neither his life his family nor his conscience was in safety i had rather be the king of metz he had said to count feschen and his project was precisely to escape to metz where the army grouped on the eastern frontier under the command of the marquis de bouillet was supposed to be still devoted to the crown surrounded by these faithful troops he would march on paris and without need of any austrians or prussians at his heels would make peace with his rebellious subjects generously magnanimously à la henri iv revenez à votre roi il sera toujours votre père votre meilleur ami quel plaisir n'aura-t-il pas à oublier toutes ces injures personnelles et de se revoir au milieu de vous lorsqu'une constitution qu'il aura librement acceptée que notre sainte religion sera Respecte, exclaims louis in the extraordinary farrago of puerility shrewish recrimination justice and common sense which he left behind him pinned so to speak to his pincushion in the form of a letter addressed to all frenchmen on the night of his escape for on the night of june the twentieth seventeen ninety one in the disguise of an upper servant a sort of steward the king passed through the gates of the tuileries the queen left separately she had been out in the town all afternoon and about seven o'clock had come home very ostensibly holding her little boy by the hand now having changed her summer gown for a sober travelling dress she found herself alone in the streets at night free as she thought and in her high glad spirits finding herself as she crossed the carousel face to face with the carriage of lafayette she gave the wheels a little derisive flick with a light cane that she carried in her hand she could not endure lafayette that was the final flare of the queen's gaiety meanwhile the dauphin and his governess with madame Elisabeth and her niece the princess royal escaping separately joined the king and queen at the corner of the rue de l'echelle and entered with them a very large roomy travelling carriage provided by count feschen who himself mounted the box as coachman for the first stage or so they journeyed all night long and all the next day toward bouillet's army at montmedy but at saint Menou they were recognised by the postmaster who rode on and outran the king's carriage Somehow they missed the reconnaissances which the army at Montmédy was sending out to meet and escort them, and the postmaster rode on. And so at Varennes they heard the tramp of galloping horses, the cries of pursuit, and found the bridge barricaded by a hay-cart turned sideways across it. Next came the enforced halt at the shop of the village mayor, Sos, the grocer, And poor, proud, passionate Marie Antoinette's imploring and beseeching of Madame Sos to further their escape. He is your king and my husband, cried the queen, seated between two bundles of tallow candles in the storeroom upstairs. Que voulez-vous, Madame? says Madame Sos. Your situation is much to be deplored, but Monsieur Sos would pay the penalty if he let you go. They would cut off his head a woman must think of her husband and again the poor queen dans une extreme agitation began explaining that that was precisely her case that the king's life was not safe in paris when lafayette's emissary rode up followed by three members of the assembly to escort the king and his family back to paris perhaps even then they might have got away for a party of bouillet's hussars came galloping up at last and though their loyalty was more than questionable still the habit of discipline and the love of a fight might have carried the day but louis's hatred of bloodshed was too strong to run the risk will it be hot he said to major gogla his amateur courier very hot replied that truthful gentleman and the king determined to try another way in one of those inexplicable effusions which in him were always the sign of a tremendous inward tension he approached his captors and throwing himself in the arms of the chief of them he exclaimed yes i am your king placed in the capital in the midst of poignards and bayonets i have come here in the provinces to seek among you the peace and liberty you all enjoy i cannot stay in paris without risking death for myself and my family and as he pronounced these words the king embraced one after the other all the astonished persons present meanwhile upstairs the ladies of the party tried by every while including simulated illness to delay the moment of departure hoping for the arrival of further troops from Montmédy. the king fell asleep and on waking said he would go in peace but to montmedy not to paris he should have held out a little longer repacked at last in their travelling coach in company with two of the deputies from paris the royal party had scarcely turned their sad reluctant faces toward the capital their carriage was still rumbling among the vineyards of varennes when in the distance the townspeople descried a strong detachment of the regiment called royal allemands hurrying to the king's relief but it was too late even in that hour of disenchantment and despair an hour or rather a day which turned her abundant blonde hair snow-white comme les cheveux d'une femme de soixante-dix ans marie antoinette discovered a new resource she would make to herself friends of the mammon of unrighteousness on those two days of their enforced return to paris the captive queen gave forth such an effluence of character and courage of disinterested zeal for the public welfare of enterprise and capacity that being a very graceful and lovely woman and into the bargain a queen to the tips of her fingers she ended by capturing one of her captors and persuaded him to espouse the cause of the constitutional monarchy he was a young protestant from grenoble named Barnave the very type of those gifted and cultured young men of the middle class whom the blocking of all advancement had forced into the revolution although a revolutionary he was a monarchist a jacobin who would fain have made the king walk between the shafts while the club held the whip at first when the queen spoke to him he turned aside on principle and looked out of the carriage window but she soon brought him to see the error of his ways and before they entered paris he was her knight no less than fashion so much courage he wrote one day in such misfortune had engraved an ineffaceable impression on his heart Barnave was sincere as for the queen she certainly felt the charm of the eloquent high-minded chivalrous young deputy si jamais la puissance revient dans nos mains le pardon de barnave est d'avance écrit dans nos cœurs," she exclaimed to madame campon who more than once expressed in her memoir the astonishment with which she heard the queen reiterate her high opinion of the jacobin and it is possible that in her distress marie antoinette may have looked upon the constitutionalists as a sort of second string to her bow a possible protection against both emigres and republicans but her secret correspondence with barnave and feschen which she placed in feschen's hands has lately been discovered in a castle in sweden and reveals her continual traffic with the powers if marie antoinette in an hour of despair accepted the constitution and hoped for the aid of barnave to secure for her feeble husband and for her son a popular throne the throne of liberty and progress that was but the illusion of a moment and barnave was but a straw she clutched at with a drowning hand like mirabeau like Danton, even like lafayette for with all of these the queen intrigued and all of them had an excellent opinion of her capacity the only man the king has to depend on is the queen said mirabeau barnave's letters are full of her character and courage the king is incapable of reigning wrote lamarck the queen might supply his incapacity if she could attend to affairs with method and perseverance and instead of according a fragment of her trust to a variety of counsellors bestow all her confidence on one adviser what gave a momentary consistency to the queen's intrigues with barnave was her hatred of the emigres and her distrust of the great powers her brother the emperor had written to her Doubtless, or at least had let her understand, as he wrote quite plainly and freely to his ambassador in Petersburg, that he hoped to preserve the monarchy in France, but that the person of the king was quite indifferent to him. I do not mind who sits upon the throne of France, whether it be Louis Sixteenth or Louis Seventeenth or Charles X, so long as that throne be restored and the monster of the riding-school duly crushed." the monster was the national assembly which held its sessions in the writing school of the tuileries pitt had replied in the same spirit both louis and the queen were well aware of these sentiments and their defenders outside the kingdom their endeavour was to steer a course clear of these false friends and of the growing party which demanded a republic that was another result of the flight to varennes until the king's escape there had been no serious thought of a french republic those whom the court called republicans like lafayette merely intended to reduce the king to the status of a hereditary president a few fantastic journalists such as camille Moulins, are not a political party but the flight to varennes had filled paris with a sombre passion of contempt and indignation utter silence had greeted the return of the sovereigns the crowds massed in the streets gave voice to neither word nor cry not a hat was raised not a head was bowed in salute the national guards lining the roadway held their arms reversed as for a funeral the queen bent her shamed face almost down to her knees we know that the thick locks piled above it turned white during that journey the king alone continued to smile and to treat the situation lightly with his usual exasperating and tactless pleasantry. End of section 26.